What's going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome to another week of BDE. We were out last week because Chuck was taking a vacation in Paris. Paris. How was it? I was the typical American tourist. We did the Louvre. <laughs> we did Versailles. We did Normandy. We did the Eiffel Tower. We drove by the tunnel where Diana passed away. God rest her soul. And I went to Jim Morrison's grave. So there you go. big time. Uh, all coming tomorrow on Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. I took all my pictures. I vlogged. I spent like 36 hours editing it down, and I think it's an 11-minute podcast. But anyway, there's a lot of love in it I put. Chuck has to put in a lot of work into his editing. It takes him two days to edit a video, so go show him some love. Hey, I, I finally figured podcast. out transitions, so I have all kinds of cool blurring together and lights <laughs> popping and all this there you go if you have epilepsy do not watch the video <laughs> that's all i'm suggesting all right let's get into the news this week we got a lot to cover so uh you know first let's let's talk about the main topic russian russian oil well, let's recap this from a yep. couple of weeks ago so a couple of weeks ago I think right like the day of the BDE show, the U.S. had suggested the Russian oil ban. Okay, we're going to ban. And on the show, I actually said, hey, short term, the ban's already in effect. I mean, no yeah. one was touching Russian oil anyway. So I didn't think it was going to do anything to prices. In fact, I thought it might lower prices a little. We saw prices lower. Uh, prices have kicked back up some. But... Now we get into longer term effects and let's talk about that. Number one, supply issues. So the Western service companies, Schlumberger, et cetera, have all pulled out of Russia. Which, Any idea you, what that does to Russian oil production? Yeah. You know, I don't know what the effect of it will be. I don't know, you know, if by not having Schlumberger and Halliburton and Baker and all the top uh, Western service companies there you know does russia have the ability to service their wells and drill wells and complete i'm not sure um i do have a note from a guy that i worked with a long time ago just you know, he told me this like six or seven years ago he's like yeah i did a lot of work in russia and he's like a lot of their oil field service trucks are decommissioned uh cold era cold war era military vehicles that are retrofitted to be oil field service vehicles. So you have a bunch of trucks out there that are old war vehicles. And I have no problem believing that <laughs> at all. Um, so, you know, I I don't know if it's that big of a deal. Um, you know, are you going to see oil production drop 30% because Halliburton and Schlumberger aren't there? I doubt it. I don't think it'd be that significant, but I'm really not sure. I talked to a guy this morning um, who did a lot of work in Russia, but it was circa kind of 20 years ago. And his take was not sure today, but a lot of the Russian stuff is chemical based. They need their chemicals to keep the, the floods going, et cetera. And so his take was as long as they can get the chemicals, it's not falling off 25%. That being said, Schlumberger, et cetera, are better than the local service companies there. So it's falling off something. So it was his take was kind of, it ain't 1%, but it ain't 25% either. Somewhere in between. Uh, you know, because what gets interesting is, I mean, we're 
Doomberg is out with a piece that says there's three and a half million barrels a day of pent up demand. So we're basically supply and demand imbalance. I think right now, three and a half million barrels sitting on the side or uh, barrels of demand a day sitting there kind of pent up. If we have supply issues in Russia, we've got the ban. It's interesting to see what happens because I think the world is saying $200, $250 oil because the Russian uh, oil issue is going to be a big mess. My take is, and we kind of talked about this two weeks ago, it's more of a closed loop system. I think the Chinese, India will buy from Russia and instead Europe's going to have to go buy from Saudi Arabia. So we're going to have to move some tankers around and some logistics and there will be friction from that. But at the end of the day, I don't see this as as big an issue. I think the bigger issue is just the fact we just don't have any supply out there on the sidelines. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point. You can have all these sanctions and everything, but world economy is all tied together in one way or another, right? So tankers, uh, shipments may get rerouted, shipped through different countries, but in the end, it's all connected one way or another. So, Well, black, it, ma black markets function really well i mean you know if if sanctions worked we wouldn't have drugs in america right yeah so i mean <laughs> it makes it difficult it makes it more costly but at the end of the day i mean yeah i mean it's I, gonna go to a black market i just looked up i thought i saw something on this but india buys three million barrels of russian oil that was reported four days ago so as long as russia has buyers from india and, and china then they're not gonna be hurting too bad right yeah, I think Putin's quote was $60 oil is fine with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, worked, it works really well. It'll, but so, you know, I read a, a thread this morning that I don't understand on Twitter, but basically what the guy was saying is with the work they can do today, Russia still has enough in the way of, of hard currency access so it can pay its debts and it can continue along. And it kind of alluded to the fact that you're just going to have this black market of stuff going on. Um, but, you know, it's it just highlights the, the bigger issue we've got is we just haven't invested as an industry. So if you want more oil, you're either going to have to go have higher prices to stimulate supply, or you're going to have to have higher prices to uh, reduce demand. Both of those mean prices are going up. Yeah. I mean, speaking of investing in the industry, engine number one, who had a uh, proxy battle with Exxon, took over a board seat last took year. Over three. Yeah, yeah, three took over seats, three. Yeah. Three board seats. Took over three board seats. Um, an article came out, I think it was on wall street journal and, Engine number one was calling for more shale output and talking about, you know, how I put out a tweet the other day that said this, like American oil is ESG. Now you have engine number one. And of course, Twitter was kind of taking this and running with it because you had this hostile takeover of Exxon's board in the name of climate change. And now they're calling for more American oil production. What are your thoughts on that? And I know you got some. I know you got some boys over there, so you're gonna hold back, <laughs> well, hold back thoughts. But <laughs> no, so so no. I went to Rice with Andy Karsner, who was one of the three dissident board members elected. Andy's really smart. He's always been a wind guy. We've talked about him some, and he and he's really thoughtful. the The thing I'm wondering about is were there subtleties in terms of what Engine One was saying? Were they consistently saying, "Hey, we want to be a responsible." oil producer but we also want to look to the future for renewables 
Or is this just a shift of, hey, we invested in Exxon. We had a proxy fight. Exxon stock's been running through the roof. We can go raise a fund. Guess what our new mantra is? Because it's interesting. They're running around saying our Permian Basin position yeah. is the most environmentally friendly oil production out there. We should be utilizing it. I love how it was clear as day. You know, back in 2018, 2019, and then 2020, when you started seeing all this pushback for endowment funds to divest in institutions and, you know, you had activist hedge funds and things of that nature. It's like, yeah, it's really easy to do those kinds of things when oil's losing money, when there is no money being made, right? Like your Yale or Harvard's endowment fund, you're like, yeah, sure, we'll divest out of oil stocks because we're not making any money on them regardless. But now that uh, things have turned around and just like you said, you know, stocks are ripping. Now people are looking at it and things change when money's being made. We have the red problem, losing money. We have the green problem and they're merged together. All of a sudden you're <laughs> making money. The I've said it before that I think the only way to get rid of what I was saying, kind of the green problem and get CIOs to say, okay, we're going to look at energy again is for fear that they underperform an index of some sort. Cause that's when you become a former CIO is when you underperform indices. And I think now, and I'm changing my tune on this cause I've been kind of the curmudgeon sitting over here in the corner going, eh, we're never going to invest in oil and gas again. You can see a path over the next three to five years that if you don't have oil exposure in your portfolio, you're going to underperform an index. And so yeah. I detect a little bit of a thawing out there. I'm not saying that we're swimming around in warm jacuzzi well, I mean, water baths. You see performance but, of stack top, or stack tops, tech stocks and capital flows. I mean, that could very well be the case that if you don't have any exposure to oil and gas, you're going to underperform index so the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> i mean no that's exactly right tech stocks underperform it's good for oil and gas stuff so so with people making all this money uh your girl elizabeth warren has oh. been, been back at it with the wind, windfall profit oh. tax. i can't talk today windfall profit tax she says that we're gonna tax those greedy oil and gas companies you got joe biden going around talking about the uh, price gouging on gasoline. So now you're looking and you're like, okay, as an oil and gas company, do you even want to make profit? Because they're just going to, they're going to attack it. You almost take the uh, tech route. Like if you look at Google, you know, Google, there's a conspiracy theory out there. It's not really conspiracy theory, but they pay all of their software engineers $400,000 a year to sit around and do nothing because if they didn't, their profit, their bottom line would be too high. And the feds would start coming after them for antitrust or for for uh, windfall profits. And so you got to look at oil and gas companies and say, are you going to do the same thing? You know, too much profit could be a bad thing. So, OK, I'm going to lecture. This is me doing the tax code. So take it with a grain of salt. Here's the thing that really bugs me. I was going back and forth with some Canadian this morning on Twitter about it. Look. Because everybody Canadian. runs around, look at all the subsidies the oil and gas business gets. We don't get subsidies. Name one. Yeah, exactly. One. <laughs> a subsidy, just to be clear, is a direct payment from the government to a business or an industry. We don't get those. What we do have in the tax code, and it's actually specific to oil and gas, and that's because we're a unique industry, and so you have particulars there. But if you spend $10 million on a well, 
about two thirds of that is intangible drilling costs. So IDCs, IDCs. So we're allowed to deduct a hundred percent of our IDCs in the year they are incurred. So we get to deduct six point six million dollars against our taxes that year. Then the remainder, let's call it three point four million, where I think we deduct or we're able to uh, deduct over seven years. So mm-hmm. let's call that just a round number, $500,000 a year. So those are deductions. You still have to pay the taxes. They're just deferred yeah, over time. That's that's always my thing. People be online like, oh, the subsidies in oil and gas. I'm like, show me one. Yeah. Show me a subsidy. They always link back to this article that was, I can't remember if it was from like, safari club or 350.org you know one of those groups and it's talking about the idcs i'm like those are those are tax deductions you're deferring taxes if we're going to go after that let's go after real estate or any other manufacturing like that's across all businesses and yeah like you said ours you know no other industry has idcs because no one else is drilling you know maybe geothermal someday um but that's all it is is tax deductions idcs aren't that different than cost of goods when tesla builds a tesla and they sell it they get to deduct the cost of goods of the whole tesla Mm -hmm. right so and and basically the concept in tax is you spend a capital amount and you should be able to depreciate deduct that over the useful life of the asset. Yeah. So, but what's wild is you go out to a software company and they pay the engineer half a million dollars a year. And he or she writes a bit of code that's going to last for 20 years. I mean, there's still stuff in windows that's probably written 20 years ago. Well, they deducted that person's salary all in that first year. So they had a hundred percent deduction on their CapEx. (laughs) So, but let's say this, just to be fair, just to be fair, I mean, an, an oil well will produce for 40 or 50 years, right? So yeah. we are accelerating the deductions. I mean, that is fair. And you know why we did that? We did that because for a long time, the world needed oil. I mean, when the Saudis are embargoing us, guess what? It's incentive to drill for more oil, right? Incentive to drill for more oil. And number two, the other thing, we've always had Texans on the Ways and Means Committee in the, sh- in the House. I mean, there's no doubt about sh- this. What do we need right now? We need incentives to drill for oil, right? So should we get rid of IDCs and the quote-unquote subsidies? Like a subsidy is you're the feds. I'm Pioneer Natural Resources. You give me $10 million to drill a well because we need more oil. That's a subsidy. Right. And like it, people on the internet have no fucking concept of what's the difference between a subsidy and a tax deduction. You want to go through any industry and see what their lobbyists were able to do to the tax code. It's just crazy because think about it this way too is if we spend $10 million drilling that well on federal lands, well, they got a lease payment for us. We had to pay them $1,000 per acre, 5000 200 bucks per acre, whatever. And they get a royalty interest. Yeah. So, you know, they get one-eighth of the revenue of the well, the federal government, just for owning and the land. And they're lobbying for a quarter now. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the key to this is at the end of the day, it's accelerated. And the windfall profits tax is just ludicrous. I mean, the fact, one, that we've lost so much money as an industry, we have one good year, it's like bend us over. <laughs> that That's horrific. But two, I mean, the Constitution actually talks about you can't have an ex post facto law, meaning 
We can't come in and say, hey, Colin, having a ridiculous beard like that's against the law. We're going to throw you in jail. You have to say this is the law. So you have a <laughs> chance to comply with it. Hey, we're going to go drill a well. Here's the tax code for it. And you go, OK, great. I did that. Whoa, you're taking half my profits now. Yeah. I mean, I'd actually worry about those standing up to constitutionality because it's ridiculous to change the rules. Last thing I'll say, I'll get off my soapbox, but you can't change the rules because uncertainty means you won't invest dollars or you need a much higher return to take on that uncertainty. Yeah. So the debate needs to happen this way. The, the environmentalists just need to say, we do not want hydrocarbons burned because we think it's destroying the planet. Therefore, we want to raise the cost of burning hydrocarbons to reduce demand. And then the other side needs to say, we want cheaper hydrocarbons. Um, and that way we can provide cheaper elect, uh, power energy to consumers. And they need to meet somewhere in the middle because we do need to be cognizant of the fact that CO2 levels have risen and temperature has risen. But we don't know how much. We don't know what the causation is versus correlation but we ignore it without our own peril. I'm off my soapbox. I'm sorry. All right, get off your soapbox. I'll get off my soapbox. Back I'll, go look at, I'll go look at chat. You 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 start talking. <laughs> I'll go look at chat. GW said in the chat that he was sad that we were gone last week. So, GW, we missed, we missed you, too. too man. Although Paris was good. You'd have liked it. <laughs> They'd have loved an ascot-wearing man like you. A, a fine gentleman. You should have taken GW with you. Uh, let's talk about this Oxy news. So Warren Buffett scooped up another 18 million shares of Oxy uh, for close to a billion dollars last week. So now that puts him at nearly 14.6% ownership in the company with 140 million shares. Chuck, what's your thoughts on that? You know, one, is it a sign that Buffett's uh, bullish on oil? And do you think it's interesting that he's increasing his stake in Oxy? Well, what's so interesting is the world's greatest, smartest investor sold at the bottom and arguably could be buying at the top, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he sold out of his, he bailed Oxy out or uh, he financed the Anadarko acquisition. He sold that position out at arguably a low and now he's buying back in at a high. But, you know, looking at him, I mean, he is seeing low multiples. That's always been his deal. So he's seeing low multiples in the uh, business. He's seeing a lot of free cash flow being thrown off. He thinks Vicky is running the company responsibly when it comes to environmental type stuff. So, yeah, this is, a, in his mind, an undervalued business right now. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, that is an interesting point that you brought up about the timing of when he sold and when he bought in. I didn't think about that, but I got to give Oxy some uh, some props because I was hating on them the last couple of years. And one, they've they've stuck around. You know, I always said Oxy was going to zero. They haven't gone to zero. And I actually think that they're, you know, doing some pretty innovative things on the carbon capture side and uh, really kind of reinventing themselves that way. So Gotta we got to make it public that rescind some of my oxy hate. Well, we got to give props to DRW. To to his credit, he was always pro the acquisition. He said, "Hey, who knew that quarantine and the virus were going to happen?" And that was really the thing that that disrupted the balance sheet for uh, oxy. And he's always been very pro Vicky, in uh, in terms of what's going on. The 
The other interesting thing that they Oxy has going on, and I think we're going to see this fight more and more, is a court ruled that they actually have to put a share, to a shareholder vote uh, an activist who has a climate type uh, requirement for the company in terms of reporting type stuff and taking Sounds into like a account. Perfect job for engine number one. Yeah, <laughs> not anymore. Hold on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was changed, last week. Changed, changed the tune. Maybe not. Yeah. So, so I think we're going to see this uh, this fight more often, and it kind of rolls into something the SEC proposed last week. They basically came out and they said um, they made a proposal that companies are going to have to have a climate disclosure. They're going to have to report on greenhouse gas emissions. You're going to have to report your scope one and your scope two. You're going to have to uh, report scope three if it's material. And so what does this mean? You're going to have to have like governance at the company to deal with these issues. But the biggest is you're going to have to have independent assurance. And what does that mean? An accounting firm, an engineering firm is going to be doing an audit on those numbers. It means a lot of money for accountants and attorneys. This is like <laughs> Sarbanes-Oxley on steroids. No, I mean, the people that I know that work in the ESG space, I mean, they talk about this, that ESG is data, just like financial data, and it needs to be reported like that. The problem has always been that there hasn't been a standardization of that data you know, across industries, but even internally within industries. And so I think that you're going to see that happen where ESG data is treated like financial data, and you're going to have these third-party audits and things of that nature. And, you know, you can think what you want about that, but that's just the way that the world's going to. And like, personally, I think scope three emissions are a fucking grift. I think it's a scam and I'll be the first to admit, I don't understand ESG data as much as a lot of people out there do. But for me, scope three, so like you're an upstream oil and gas operator, you know, say that you're diamondback out in the Permian and you produce a barrel of oil. How's it, how is it your responsibility of how an end user uses that barrel of oil? Like now you're responsible for other people's activities. You're filling a need in the market. They are demanding a barrel of oil, right? And you're providing that barrel of oil. How are you responsible for the emissions that come from the activity that the end user? Well, has? and isn't it isn't it double and triple counting because you already you're, did scope you're, one, you're scope, scope one, three, two, somebody yeah. else scope one, scope two. I think so it's, I, I think it's a grift. I think it's a scam. Uh, someone wants to come on the show and enlighten me and teach me about scope three emissions. I'm open to hear it, but. I just think it's ridiculous. And I think scope three in my mind is always used against oil and gas companies. And no one ever looks at like Amazon. You know, you look at the waste that Amazon has. I can order a toothbrush on Amazon Prime right now and it'll be delivered in the next hour. They're gonna use fuel <laughs> to deliver me that toothbrush. How how much waste is there in emissions from that activity? So that's that's my thing. And that kind of goes more into the standardization of ESG data is it always seems like ESG one is focuses on E and two, it's applied to oil and gas and no other industries. It's like want some standardization and fairness. Well, and, I, you know, I'm really good at saying, hey, we need to have the digital wildcatters platform on this or whatever. So I'm going to do that again and then see if I actually follow through. I think. One, standardization of, of information, but two, which is way more important, we as an industry have to give some sort of qualitative definition around what the numbers mean. 
Because if we put out, you know, this admission is 0.3 parts per million. Nobody knows what that means. We need to be able to say as an industry, hey, we went from 0.4 to 0.3. Here's what that means. Translate it into simple concepts that people understand. Toby's doing a great job with this. He's saying, if you let me import all the LNG I can, it's as if we went to electric cars all across America and this and that. Yeah. We need to put qualitative measures around this so that we define what these ESG metrics mean and don't let the other side do it. Because if we're just throwing out, you know, 0.3, 0.4, you're going to be in court every day arguing and a lawyer and some judge in East Texas is going to say, yeah, you went from 0.3 to 0.4. That's the end of the world. And we just can't let that happen. We got to get ahead of this. Yeah, absolutely. If we don't govern the industry ourselves and come up with that standardization, someone else is going to do it for us, right? And we got 90s uh, random in the house. He said, welcome to the club that downstream already has to deal with. They're cracking down like they did with refineries, and now they're doing chemical plants and upstream. Talk to the plastic guys. They're getting this hell too. So it sounds like uh, downstream uh, refineries already deal with this type of stuff, which makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that – Historically speaking, refineries have probably had a lot more uh, headaches with regulation and measures like this than Upstream has. And now 90s is getting his payback. He said Upstream guys are getting a taste of it. Well, and what happens, and this is what happens with Sarbanes-Oxley, is you put reporting requirements on folks. So you hire more people to gather more data. Number two, you got to have to pay outside experts. You're going to have to pay your accounting firm, your engineering firm for the audit. You're going to have to pay more, which means bigger companies can absorb this. It makes smaller companies struggle. So smaller companies go away and it makes having a startup almost impossible to do. And that's what we've seen in refining, right? Yeah. I mean, you've seen this, this contraction in the number of refiners out there. You don't see a lot of refining startups happen. And we all know what happens with oligopolies. Prices go up. Yeah, They just do. They just do. So Yeah, I don't hear very tied into the oil and gas startup scene. I don't hear anyone trying to start up a refinery. I've <laughs> <laughs> heard a couple LNG plants down in Louisiana, but that's it. But All right, let's roll into our uh, finger of the week. Chuck, oh, you pushed the wrong graphic. Who I lit, did. Who lit Chuck on the video board? I usually do the... I did it. <laughs> My favorite part of the show is watching Chuck struggle with the uh, graphics board when it happens. Oh, I rock usually, the graphics usually board. Usually you do good. I usually do really well. I'm usually just, you do good, but... I'm, I'm off a week here. When you Sorry. mess up, you mess up. But anyways, finger of the week going to Bloomberg Opinion. So let me bring up this tweet real quick. Put out this tweet that said, inflation stings most if you earn less than $300,000. Here's how to deal. Take the bus. Don't buy in bulk. Try lentils instead of meat. Nobody said this would be fun. <laughs> Well, it, it didn't, didn't they also say something about get rid of your dog? The article, it didn't say get rid of your dog. It said reconsider having your pet. <laughs> Which, yeah. 
so reconsider having your pet and twitter obviously uh had a heyday with this one um one i went out on the record i'm a big fan of lentils like lentil soup tastes good Extremely, i'm down with lentils got a high you know high density and protein they're healthy for you so Everyone was bashing on lentils. They said, I'm not eating lentils. I'm not eating the bugs. I said, look, I am eating lentils. I'll eat lentils and steak, get all my protein. But the other stuff, getting rid of your, like, one, you know, if you make under $300,000, no one said this is going to be easy. <laughs> Kill your dog. Uh, I'll take stating eating. the obvious for 500 Stop Alex. eating meat. Uh, don't buy in bulk, which I don't even understand the don't buy in bulk because this is economies of scale. You think that, hey, if I'm going to buy – toilet paper deodorant for the year i should buy it right now because it's probably only going to get more expensive so i should buy it so i don't even understand who who wrote this why they said don't buy in bulk but you know take the bus you know bloomberg opinions in here with the uh the the hot tip so want to give finger of the week to bloomberg opinion and also just we should have a uh, thanks tips section <laughs> thanks tips for the the good tips on how to survive inflation the the, the funniest part of that is it comes from bloomberg yeah (laughs) like he knows how to slum the irony's not lost on me so anyways bloomberg getting the finger of the week first time first time appearance on that Uh, i'm sure it won't be the last (laughs) our our finger of the week kind of circular economy i know it really is keeps coming back it's actually harder than you think to come up with something that's not obvious i mean how many times can we give it to warren Give it to Bernie Sanders. Give it to Biden. I mean, they're just going to end up having their own segments and we're the just Hall of Fame. To, yeah, the Hall of Fame. But, anyways, guys, uh, it's good to be back this week. Um, if you haven't already, make sure to check out digitalwildcatters.com. Um, go check out Empower. Uh, that's our Bitcoin mining event that we're doing here, March 30th through 31st. Should have around 1,500 people. It's going to be a wild time. Um, if you're interested in learning about Bitcoin mining or um, the role that energy plays in that, definitely want to be there. Um, just going to be a lot of good people, a lot of smart people together. Um, lots of free beer starting at 5 o'clock. So at minimum, it's a good party. You can't, you uh, you can't beat it. Uh, make sure you check out Chuck's podcast dropping tomorrow, his trip to Paris. He worked really hard on it <laughs> for two days. So show him some love. And we will catch you guys next week.